And you can be seated as you do so. Kiddos, you can head out. See Miss Antonia in the back. Follow our friends in the yellow shirts. Kiddos, we're so glad that you're in here worshiping with us today. We love you. Uh, and we pray a blessing over your time as you head off to those eight kids. So glad that you're in here. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And as you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5, we'll be in verse 9. I want to put a picture on the screen, um, if we have it, um, of, of a dear friend of mine. Uh, he was celebrating one year uh, today of his church plant, Reconciliation Church in Raleigh. Now, yeah, this is an incredible thing. Now, if you've been around Mosaic for some length of time, then you may recognize Russ. Russ has preached here before, back when we were at the PDC. Russ is a friend of mine from North Carolina who's from Memphis, and now he's planted a church. They launched a year ago in the middle of the pandemic, uh, and the, the Lord has done some great things there. And uh, you, you, you may not know this, but one of Mosaic's ministry partners is an organization called Leaders Collective. Uh, I, I went through Leaders Collective. Russ went through Leaders Collective in the same cohort. Uh, and we support them. And one of the things that Leaders Collective does is they work to mobilize healthy church planters to plant churches for the long haul. And Russ is one of those planters. I had the joy of going through the cohort with him, and he's a dear friend of mine. And I just want to pray for Reconciliation Church Day. They're a church that we actively support. Russ is one of our church plant partners, and they're celebrating one year. And I just want to celebrate all that God has done there and remember that God's kingdom is a lot bigger than Mosaic Church. Uh, we're, we're just one small kingdom outpost in a world of many, and I'm so grateful for Russ and for his friendship and for what God is doing at Reconciliation. So would you join me in praying? Father, we love you, and I thank you for my friend Russ God, I thank you for um, his counsel to me. Uh, God, I thank you for his coaching to me. I thank you that um, God is an empty nester. I thank you for the ways that he, uh, he, he talks me out of father shame a lot. And God, I just thank you for the way he's an encouragement to everyone who knows him. God, I just pray a blessing over Reconciliation Church. I pray a blessing over Russ and his family. God, I pray that they would delight in the Lord, God, that you would give them the desires of their heart. God, as I know that he desires you and your purpose is there for Nightdale in North Carolina. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for the people today as, uh, as our friend Canaan preaches to them. I pray that you would bless them with the word of God, that they would be encouraged, that they would not grow weary in doing good. And we thank you for the joy of God's kingdom. We thank you that Mosaic Church is just one small outpost in a world of so many known and unknown to us that are making much of the name of Jesus. I thank you for Russ. I thank you for reconciliation. I thank you for the generosity of the people of Mosaic that we can have the joy of participating in blessing churches and church planters. Thank you, God. I pray that you would continue to use today to refresh, to renew, to encourage the brothers and sisters at Reconciliation Church. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 5, verse 9. That's what we're looking at today. And I'll give you, sometimes I come up here with a confession, uh, and there's another confession today. Much to my wife's frustration, I am a huge mega fan of Bob Dylan. Uh, and that's not good because uh, I know Bob Dylan's voice sounds like what would happen if you put gravel in a blender. It's not pleasant. It's not good. But his lyrics are phenomenal. And he's got this song where he sings all these different accusations. He's kind of singing all of these different accusations. And one of the lines, just to give you a sample, is this. You've been accused of murder. How do you plead? And he sings this refrain, and it's kind of the line that ends every accusation through the song. He sings, I pay in blood, but not my own. 
I pay in blood, but not my own. You see, Dylan has always explored theological and spiritual themes in his music, and this is certainly one of the times where he does it explicitly. I pay in blood, but not my own. Today, we ask this question. Why all the blood? Why all the blood? I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of discipling a new believer, but I'll tell you, you want to know one of the first questions that somebody who's new to Christianity will ask? Why do y'all talk about blood so much? Right? And it's, it's, it's a pretty normal. Maybe you've asked yourself that. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, why? Why all this talk about blood? Why do we sing about blood? Why do we have a symbol that we end every service with that involves Christ's blood? Why do we talk about Christ's blood? I, I think we need to ask this question. What does Christ's blood have to do with our salvation and why is it necessary? That's a good question. And in Romans 5, 9, we get a picture of it. So I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, just to kind of, uh, kind of catch us up. Over the last few weeks, we've been just doing a very deep dive into Romans chapter 5. And uh, I want to read verses 6 through 9 just to kind of give us some context. And then we'll dive deep into verse 9 today. So let me read Romans 5, begin verse 6, just like every week after I read it. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an invitation for you to give thanks and respond saying, thanks be to God. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, today I want you to see three things. And guys, we can leave that up the whole time because I'd love to just call attention to it. Thank you. Today I want you to see three things. The first one is that before we're saved by the blood, we're condemned by the blood. Before we're saved by the blood, we're condemned by the blood. But we can be saved by the blood. And if we're saved by the blood, then we are sealed by the blood. Three things, condemned by the blood, saved by the blood, sealed by the blood. Paul in Romans 5 and throughout Romans already, has been describing the problem and the consequences of sin. Now, if you weren't with us back in the fall, let me just give you a bit of a recap here. In Romans 1.18, we hear this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in Romans 1.18, we hear that because of sin by nature, we are under the wrath of God. That's bad news. But it continues. Romans 1.21, we hear, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because of sin by nature, we're not only under the wrath of God. Because of sin by nature, we have rejected God. Romans 3, 10 through 18, I won't read all of it, but just to give you a snapshot of what it sounds like, none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, 10 through 18 is a sustained argument that we, all of us, by nature, are badly broken and misshapen. We are contorted and twisted in very broken ways. And then in Romans 3, 23 through 25, maybe one of the clearest articulations of the impact of this brokenness. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. Paul has been trying to describe in detail that the problem of sin is a problem indeed. It is a very big issue. We stand underneath the wrath of God because we are born into this world having rejected God. And having rejected God, we now stand with due of the consequences of that rejection. That we stand not only under God's wrath, but there is a debt that must be paid, and that debt is death. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why does every one of Kyle's sermons have to be so encouraging? (laughs) I know that this is a hard word. It's a hard word that Paul has for us. But listen, we have to see how bad the bad news is so that we are surprised, startled, and captivated by how good the good news is. Because Paul is painting the problem in stark contrast to the solution. Because Paul wants us to see that even though the bad news is incredibly bad, the good news is even better. The good news is even better. Even though our condemnation seems so heavy, it is then clear to us that the salvation of Christ is so necessary. See, by nature, we are condemned by the blood. A debt is owed, and that debt is death. That debt is blood. In verse 25 of Romans 3, we hear the first mention in Romans of Christ's blood. That he was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood. So why? Why all the blood? Hebrews 9.22, making a commentary on the Old Testament, says that it is clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So why all the blood? Well, because blood is what is owed. Why all the blood? Because the debt is death. We often think about the salvation of God. We think about the sacrifice of Christ and being like, God certainly could have accomplished our salvation without blood, right? As if it was God's fault that blood was what was required. No, no. Blood is required because of our failure. Blood is not required because God's not creative enough to think of another solution. Blood is required because in the garden, when Adam and Eve rejected God, they took upon themselves the debt of death that had been guaranteed in the face of rejection and rebellion and failure. The debt is death. The debt is blood, not because God is unimaginative or punitive, but because of the nature of our failure. God told us what would happen if we ate from the tree. Death would come. And death must come to those who have sinned. And all of us have sinned. Blood is required for the forgiveness of sins because death was the consequence of sin. Because of sin by nature, death is owed. So how can we be saved from the penalty of death? If we're all sinners and death is what is owed... How can we be saved from the penalty of death? Only through death. 
death is what is owed. Nothing has changed about that. As Scripture says, God cannot acquit the guilty. Paul is asking a question to the church in Rome. How can God be both the just and the justifier? Someone has to take the consequences of sin. You see, what I need you to see here before we get into the good news that we can be saved by the blood is this. Before the blood of Christ is a symbol of our salvation, it is a reminder of our condemnation. When we look to the cross of Christ, we are looking at what we deserve. It is a picture of what is owed to us. And it is a picture of what we will receive if we reject the sacrifice of Jesus. Before the cross is a symbol of salvation, the cross is a picture of condemnation. It is a reminder to us, not that God is so gracious and merciful, though it is. It is a reminder to us that we are condemned to die. And yet someone has taken our place. Someone has taken our place. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And we are sinners in need of forgiveness. We cannot be declared righteous apart from this payment. And we can't make the payment on our own. Paul says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified by his blood. How do we move from condemned by the blood to justified by his blood. Well, it happens through the grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the work of the Spirit. You see, what Jesus does on the cross is called atonement. Atonement. It's a sacrifice that covers sins. Atonement. It's a tear that is mended. It is a hole that is patched. It is a debt that is paid. It is a gap that is bridged. This is what Jesus does at the cross. He makes atonement. He covers our sin. He pays the debt we owe. He stands in substitution of where we belong. This is what Jesus does. Atonement is sacrificial language. It means that Christ has covered our sin with his blood. On the cross, Jesus was the sacrifice for sin. And because of his sacrifice, we can be justified. Because of his sacrifice, we, who are born into this world unrighteous, can be justified. We can be declared righteous. Not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Now, we desperately need this, and Paul knows that we desperately need it, just like he knew the church in Rome desperately needed it. We have spent weeks in Romans 5, and we have weeks remaining in Romans 5, because it is so easy for the human heart to believe that you will be able to find justification somewhere else. And Paul keeps batting it into our ears. There is no justification that will last outside of Jesus Christ. We have hearts that are prone to self-justification, constantly trying to prove to God that we are worthy on our own, constantly trying to prove to God that we can measure up, constantly bargaining with God in terms of what he needs, what he wants, what he desires, telling God to settle for a little less of us. And yet, this is not what's on offer in the gospel. The good news of justification is there is a once-for-all declaration of righteous because the blood of Christ is sufficient. Because the blood of Christ is sufficient. You see, throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament, we hear about a very large and active sacrificial system. Paul is assuming that his audience knows 
what that sacrificial system was for. And maybe it's too much to presume that we know what it was for. Because I find that when people read the Old Testament, in particular those first five books, they go, why, are all, why is there so much blood, names, and numbers? Because there's a lot of blood, names, and numbers in the Pentateuch, right? You're reading through the first five books of the Old Testament, and you're wondering, why all this blood? The reason for it is exactly what the author of Hebrews has said. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The sacrificial system stood as a shadow in the history of God's people pointing forward to a fulfillment that would come in Jesus Christ. Sacrifice was always necessary. The problem with the sacrificial system wasn't the sacrifices. The problem with the sacrificial system wasn't the blood, though those two things may turn us off to it. The problem with the sacrificial system was the blood wasn't worthy enough and the sacrifice wasn't good enough. The the, the readers, the listeners, the people of God in the Old and New Testament, they see no problems with sacrifices. I know it offends our moral sensibility. Certainly, I'm not encouraging you to have a goat sacrifice on your front lawn here in Richardson. I bet your homeowners association would make a a few phone calls, you know. I bet people would object to that. I'm not saying you should. And let me tell you, given what God has done, there's no need for it. Because a sacrifice has come that is better. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a shadow. It was a figure. It was a hazy view of something that was coming in perfection. And that something was a someone, and that someone was Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of bulls and goats and birds and lambs was never going to cover sin. It was a shadow of a coming Messiah, of a coming Savior. And I know it's easy for us to think sacrifice is antiquated. But we still want it. We still want atonement and we still know that we need it. Do you know how I know? For the last few years... Anytime there is a rupture or a division, anytime that something broken is discovered in someone's life, do you know what we demand from them? We may not demand physical death, but we will demand social death. We will demand a public execution. That's, we, we will demand a crucifixion. Now, it's a lot cleaner than it used to be. But the culture of atonement, the culture of sacrifice has merely been polished. It hasn't been removed. We are a people who know when great evil has occurred, a sacrifice must be made. The only difference is, as Christians, we believe the sacrifice has already come. You know, everybody's arguing about cancel culture and what to do about it. I'm unconcerned with the social and cultural realities of it. I will tell you, I am concerned about the theological realities of it, which is a belief that sacrifice and atonement can be made anywhere else but in the cross of Christ. If you're looking for justice and if you're looking for forgiveness and if you're looking for peace, there's only one place you'll find it in perfection, and it's Jesus. You can reject an old culture of atonement, but you'll merely adopt a new one. And I'll tell you, the sacrifices of this new one, they won't do as much and they'll be just as brutal. See, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his crucifixion, it covers sin. Sin incurs a debt, and in the death of Christ, that debt is paid. Notice what Paul doesn't say here. He does not say, since therefore we have now been justified, salvation is possible. He doesn't say, since therefore justification has been made possible by the blood of Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Paul is saying, the work has been accomplished. There's nothing remaining in it. For those who place their trust in Jesus, there is nothing more to do to make Christ's sacrifice 
significant. There is nothing more to do to make Christ's sacrifice sufficient. This is what the Bible calls complete atonement. It's what theologians call complete atonement. Christ's blood accomplishes salvation for God's people. Let me tell you something. Christ's blood does not make salvation possible. Christ's blood makes salvation actual. Christ's blood does not make salvation away. Christ's blood makes salvation realized. Christ's blood saves. The work of Christ on the cross is not merely something that makes the possibility of salvation possible. It brings the reality of salvation to God's people. This is the work of Christ on the cross. There is no one whose Christ's blood accomplished salvation for that will be lost. Nobody. Christ's blood will not be found lacking in any regard. It is necessary for salvation, and it is given to everyone who trusts in Jesus for that promise. But you might be thinking, hold on. This verse is a little confusing because... It sounds like salvation happened in the past, but, but if you go forward, listen to what it says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, this verse is fascinating because it says that we have been justified and we will be saved. So is the Christian saved or will the Christian be saved? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Think about it like this. Um, when you buy a car or a house, you make a down payment on it, right? You make a down payment on this car or the house. Nobody would object to you calling that car or that house yours. It's your car. It's your house. Now, but there's more that's owed, right? There's more that must be paid. It needs to be finished out, right? And so you, you make these payments, When a Christian experiences justification by the blood of Jesus, they are saved. Yes, absolutely. But that salvation is ongoing and will come to its proper goal only in the end. And here's the difference between God making a down payment and you making a down payment. You can default on your loans. God will never. God is never going to break his promises. God is never going to default. God is never going to be able to pay the bill. God will never go bankrupt. He's never going to break his commitments or his promises. What God has begun, God will finish. Salvation begins in the life of a Christian, but it does not end until the final day. It does not end until the day of Christ's coming. And we are saved and being saved and will be saved. This doesn't make Christ's salvation less. It makes it more. So many Christians live as if salvation is merely a past reality. God is a divine etch-a-sketch, and he takes all the muck and the mire on your panel and tablet, and he shakes it up and forgets it. And you make a little bit more, and he shakes it up and forgets it again. But this is not the picture of Christian salvation. The picture of Christian salvation is that you have been forgiven forever. You will be forgiven in real time forever, and one day forever will come, and you will go into it forgiven forever. That's Christian salvation. It's past, present, and future. It's not just thank you, God, for what you have done. It is thank you, God, for what you have done. Thank you, God, for what you are doing. And thank you, God, for what you will do. This is Christian salvation. This is a big, big picture that Paul puts in front of us, that Scripture puts in front of us. And you may be in here today, and you may feel like, listen, the truth of the matter is, I don't feel like I'm going to make it. Maybe you feel like, I feel like God has left me to fend for myself. 
I feel like I'm stuck between what God has done and what you're saying is going to do, and I feel like he's abandoned me here. Let me tell you something. He's never going to abandon you because he will never, ever forget you. He's never going to forsake you. Why? Because he is going to bring to completion. Since therefore we have now been justified as blood, much more shall we be saved. Paul sees that this is bigger. He uses this phrase all throughout Romans. It's weird for us to translate this idea of much more. He uses it all across the letter. The idea here is that he's taking something that's great, and then he's going, but it's even greater. It's even bigger. You have been justified, but much more. You're going to be saved. You know, it probably says a lot about me, I think a lot about many of us, that the idea of future salvation Maybe it, doesn't, um, maybe it doesn't wash over us in the kind of way that it should because we think so little of the coming of Christ. It seems either so far, so ethereal, so future, so, so distant, so abstract, so conceptual that it feels like, well, why would I be thankful for this? I don't even really know what this is, but Paul is giving us a picture here. This day that is coming will be a day of salvation from wrath. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the judgment of God. This is what Paul is saying. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What is the wrath to come? What is the wrath of God. It is the final judgment of God on the world. It is the final pouring out of God's righteous anger and punishment against sin. But wait, hasn't God poured out all his wrath and all his judgment on Jesus? Yes. For all of those who place their faith in Jesus, the day of judgment is not a day of judgment because it is a day when we realize that one has already been judged in our place. Yes, for those who place their faith in Jesus, there is no more judgment. There is no more wrath. All that that day brings is a celebration of a full forgiveness forever with Jesus. But it is a day that is coming to the world. It is a reckoning. We cannot downplay this. I, mean, I know it's, it's, it's passe. It's almost become socially taboo, even in Christian circles, to talk about a day of judgment. But aren't there things about this world that are broken that you want to see fixed? Anybody? Nobody. No, raise your hands. Genuine. Are there? Th yes. Okay, I, I thought as much. Would anybody like to see the end of human trafficking? In 2,000 years, 6,000 years, whatever your history of the world, have we figured it out yet? Anybody like to see the end of oppression? Anybody like to see the end of death? Anybody like to see the end of cruelty, of torture, of enmity, of hate? What breaks your heart? We've had thousands of years, more resources now than we've ever had before. Have we fixed it? The day of judgment is good news for those who want a righteous world. Because God is going to bring it. In fullness, this is the wrath of God to come. The wrath of God is a pouring out of, God, of God's love and holiness and righteous anger against that which is broken, against that which is evil. And for those who have received the work of Christ and have it applied on their behalf, 
That day is coming, and it will be a day of holy celebration. Because what we, have will, what we will have desired will have come in its fullness, the righteousness of God. But for those who persist in the rejection of Christ Jesus, they have taken no share in the mercies of Christ, and judgment will come. Judgment will come. This wrath to come is described elsewhere in the Bible as death. It's described elsewhere as separation from God. It's described elsewhere as hell. The wrath to come is the wrath that we all deserve by nature. Nobody enters in to heaven because they deserve to be there. Nobody is removed from the wrath of God to come because they did something impressive for God. They're removed from the wrath of God to come. They're rescued from the wrath of God to come by the great work of God on their behalf. By grace, by grace, by grace. And there is only one refuge to escape this wrath. The refuge of Christ Jesus, who has absorbed God's wrath for those who place their faith in him. This is an exhortation to us on two fronts. If you are a Christian, rejoice and celebrate and proclaim that salvation has come and salvation is promised. And tell everyone you know about that good news. You are someone who has not placed their faith in Jesus. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. Blood is owed, and blood has been paid at the cross. We stand in desperate need to be saved from sin, to be saved from the wrath to come. And we can experience that salvation, but it requires payment, a payment that we can't make on our own. Nothing that we have can cover the debt. We don't have what is necessary, even when we try to make the payment by ourselves. Have any of you ever traveled outside the country? Okay, a few of you. When you, when you go outside the country, it's kind of sometimes, you know, a fun souvenir to bring back maybe currency from another country. Make some bills, some coins, you know, you can bring it back. You're like, hey, look at this. Isn't that kind of funny? Look at their money. You know, it's not funny. Um, but uh, we bring it back. We're like, huh, isn't this strange? It's got different people on there, you know. Of course. Um, uh, I was, uh, I, I, a few years ago, I traveled to Russia. And I brought back some currency from Russia, Russian rubles, some bills and some coins. And uh, I was uh, in middle of nowhere, southeast Texas, where Lauren and I were living at the time, going into our local grocery store. Uh, not a lot of Russians in Southeast Texas. Uh, and uh, so I go up and, and I'm checking out and I'm putting the groceries in the car and uh, the cashier gives me the total. And so I hand her some bills and um, she, she doesn't say anything. I don't hear her work in the register. And I keep putting the groceries in the car and she, she just looks at me and she says, excuse me, sir, I, I don't know what this is, but like we don't accept this. And I, she handed it back to me and it was some Russian rubles. It was some currency. You know, I'd given her money, but I hadn't given her what was owed. I'd given her something, but it, it wasn't what was necessary. And a lot of times, we treat God the same way. We kind of show up with God and we say, okay, hey, could you take a little bit of this? Could you have my works? Just maybe a little bit more of my time, maybe some guilt. If I feel guilty, will that work? Maybe a little bit more money? You know, um, I, I could serve more. Um, maybe I should just feel bad more often. Maybe if I was, gosh, I, we, should do, we, should, we, should, uh, we should do more with these people. We should do more of these things. And we keep handing all of this currency 
to God. It means something to us. And he's looking at us and saying, excuse me, I, I don't know what this is. This is not what's owed. This is not what's required. And if we're left there standing, and that's the end of the story, well, there's nothing left. We walk out with nothing, less than nothing. Because we can't make the exchange. But God has provided what is owed. God has given us what we need to give to him. Can you believe the grace of God? God gives himself so that we who have rejected God can give ourselves to God? That's the love of God that justified and that will save us from the wrath of God to come. Maybe that's where you're at today. You know atonement must be made. You, you know that God wants your life, but you're trying to bargain with him. And God won't accept that. Blood is what is owed and nothing else can be accepted. So we're faced with the question, how will we pay God back? And the overwhelmingly bad news is this, we can't. We don't have what is needed. We don't have what is required. We don't measure up. We aren't acceptable. We aren't worthy. And because of this, we, you and I, are condemned by the blood. That's the bad news. By nature, you and I, were condemned by the blood, and we are just recipients of the wrath of God to come. Unless. Unless someone will take our place. Unless someone will pay the debt of death, the debt of blood that we owe. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus. The blood is necessary because the debt is death. And the salvation that we are given in Christ is past, present, and future. The past debt isn't just cleared away. We are given a standing with God we cannot lose now. And an assurance that on a day of God's coming, we will meet that day with celebration and not with lament. The blood of Christ has secured our salvation in the past. It is applied in the present experience of the believer when they place their faith in Jesus and we are kept by the Spirit of God, sealed by the blood of Jesus until the day of judgment. Because of Jesus, you can hear all the accusations, all the condemnations of your life, and you can respond, I pay him blood, but not my own. Is that your testimony? If not, it can be today. And William Cowper, the songwriter, he tells us exactly how it can be our testimony. He sings, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. That dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Ere since faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. There is a fountain filled with blood. It is the blood of Jesus, not the blood of bulls and goats or lambs, not even the blood of sinners who deserve the death. It is the blood of a Savior who was perfect and in his perfection died a sinless death so that we might have a righteous life. And not a righteous life just in the past, not merely a righteous life today, but a righteous life that God will honor forever as his people live in the freedom of forgiveness forever. This is the good news of the gospel, and it is impossible apart from the blood of Jesus Christ.
And it is good news. Lord, help our unbelieving and hard hearts believe. It is good news. I am begging you to believe. It is good news. It's my singular goal to convince you that it is good news. I have nothing else to give you but the good news of Jesus. And I will not pretend to have anything else that's better than that. I don't know what I can say to the people of our church and the people of our community apart from this. There is salvation in Jesus. And what you find there will be better than what the world has to offer and you can get it nowhere else and you need it more than you ever knew. And it's free. I hope it's a blessing to you today to remember it and I hope you're so blessed by it that you'll tell everybody. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do. Not as we should. Uh, how could we? The prize and the treasure is too great. Even to sell everything we have to buy the fill that holds it would be to have not sold enough. God, convince us. Convince us. Convince me. Break through the callousness and the hardness of our hearts to remind us God, of the good news of the mercy and grace of Jesus. God, we, th we know that nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood can save us. Not just an abstract conceptual theme of blood, not just a historical story involving blood, but the real blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I know it's offensive our modern ears. I know that it grates against our sensibilities and yet we know in the corners of our heart that sacrifice is demanded. That atonement must be made. And I pray that we will come to the cross at Golgotha and we will plunge ourselves from the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that we will have our guilty stains removed washed white as snow. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for your love. Continue to confound our hearts with the wonder of your gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive the Lord's Supper together? We practice open communion here, which, which means that the Lord's Supper is primarily reserved for the members of Mosaic, but we invite you who are in good standing with the church that you belong to, who follow Jesus in salvation, to receive the Lord's Supper with us, your family. This is a family meal, so we invite you to partake of it with us. And it is a weekly reminder to us as Christians of the broken body, yes, and of the shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, this is a weekly reminder of why the shedding of blood is significant. Because apart from it, there is no new covenant. Apart from it, there is no forgiveness of sins. Apart from it, there is no future hope or salvation. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he broke it, he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we eat.
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink in remembrance of me. And so we drink. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And to that we say, Maranatha, Lord, would you come? The band's going to lead us as we worship together in song one more time. And then afterwards, John will come up and lead us in the benediction. But John and I will be available after the service. If you're somebody who feels like, I, I don't know that I have received salvation, but I know that I need it. We would love nothing more than to talk with you and pray with you, to beg God for the great work of grace. Worship with us.